You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Have you noticed that our world is getting more intense? Uh, the fog is getting more intense uh, here in the room today. Earlier it was more intense outside. I don't know if you've noticed that uh, as of recently, but it's been getting more intense. Our, our whole world is, and the question is, are we elevating our intensity as a church in such a way as to capture the hearts and minds and passions of the next generation, let alone our hearts and minds? That's the question. Is the church becoming, you know, commensurate escalation? So how do you say that? That's what happens when you try to use big words. It just doesn't, you know, didn't work out so well. But are we moving in such a way that we are matching the intensity of our world as it gets more intense. In fact, fights and arguments get more intense. Uh, you know, instead of these days, instead of people, if, if a fight happens in a school, instead of trying to break up the fight, most people pull out their cell phone and they record the fight and they start yelling, world star, because they want to, you know, upload it on the internet. So instead of breaking the fight up, they want to actually share it or, you know, propagate it. And it's interesting, our culture, if you watch most of the, you know, regular TV even, if you watch, you know, reality TV, there's a lot of drama that goes on and there always has to be a fight. And the way that they kind of resolve those things is that each person shares their opinion and then they kind of just move forward. There's not really resolution. In fact, there's rarely authentic forgiveness. It's just each person share their own opinion and then you kind of just move forward. And our, our culture trains us, just share your opinion because what you feel is valid and what you believe is right. And so make sure you just share that and then find a way to move forward in your life when it comes to fights and quarrels and arguments because our world is escalating even in fights and arguments, whether it's warfare in Syria whether it's fights in the inner city or in the public school or in your home or in your workplace or the inner fight that goes on inside of you. I have some questions for you. I want you to think about this. Why do people irritate you? Why do they do that? Why do you get angry? Do you just make excuse for it? Do you just say, you know, I'm, I'm irritable, or, you know, perhaps it's hormonal, or I'm grumpy, or I have a short fuse, or it's just the way I am? Why do you and I get angry? Sometimes you get angry and wonder why the intensity of your emotions is just so high. We ask these questions. We wonder why do people irritate me? Why do I get angry? And anger, if we understand it at its root, the very root cause of anger is not getting what we think we deserve. So someone owes you something and you didn't get what you deserve and so you become angry about it. Your expectations are different. It didn't work out the way you wanted it to and you become angry. Anger says, if you're taking notes today, you owe me. So when your anger starts to happen, you're getting angry because somebody cut into your lane of traffic in the gap that you were taking. You get angry because somebody violated you in some way or took something from you. you anger says, you owe me. 
Things should be different. When someone sins against you, they always rob you of something that you deserve. And so we make a judgment and we say, I deserve better. And you may say, well, what did they rob you of? Well, let me give you some examples. What do people owe you? Perhaps they owe you that they took your good reputation or they tainted it or they told a lie about you. You owe me the truth. You owe me my good reputation back. You told other people something bad about me. It might be that you owe me love. You've been withholding love. You owe me that love, but you all the time just ignore, ignore, ignore me. You're withholding love. Maybe you're withholding respect, and you owe me respect, that you should show me respect and honor, but it's all the time, the constant nitpicking, disrespect, sly comment, just criticism of this and that and getting nitpicked to death. You owe me respect. You owe me my purity. Maybe someone stole your purity. Maybe someone took your financial security and you owe me money. Maybe you say to someone, you owe me protection, but you gave me violence. You owe me sheltering, but you took it all away. Maybe you say, you owe me a second chance. Like, why do you bring that up every time? You owe me affection, just a tenderness. And it's just cold, it's just deadpan. See, we get angry about things when we think that someone else owes us something. Who are you angry with? And what do they owe you? If you're taking notes today on your outline, there are some gaps there. I want you to take a minute and write down the names of a couple people that you've been angry with, and, but I want you to identify why. What does that person owe you? So if the person sitting next to you, write down initials or like pig Latin or something, but I want you to write down some names of people just being honest. I'm angry with this person, and this is what I think they owe me. Because we have to understand what do we think that we're owed in order to understand why we're becoming angry about it and carrying that anger. Now, write down the names of people who immediately come to mind. They may not be present in your life right now. In fact, they, they could even be dead. But you might still be angry and carrying the anger of somebody who's no longer with us. After the shooting at Columbine, when I was working as a youth pastor in Colorado, there were so many students who were coming back, and, and uh, those boys, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they killed 12 students in their school and a teacher who bled out before help could arrive. And then they turned the guns on themselves and killed themselves. And they shot a lot of kids who lived. They threw pipe bombs at kids who got shrapnel wounds. And so many of those kids, whether they were injured or not, dealing with the post-traumatic stress after that event, just dealing with it, coming up with really tough questions like, how do I get over this? How do I get through this? How do you actually forgive your enemy? And how do you forgive your enemy when they're dead, when they're no longer with us? And what would that even look like? These are the real questions of our world. These are the real questions that we carry when we walk in the anger, when something has been stolen from us and we know that we are owed something. Andy Stanley says that when we are sinned against, a debt-to-debtor relationship is created. So imagine just a one-way street. Someone sins against you. Their sin causes 
a debt to you now are the, the debtor. A debt-to-debtor relationship has been established. And that's what happens when you and I get sinned against. It's like Inigo Montoya in the movie A Princess Bride. Perhaps you've seen that. What does he do? He comes up to Count Dugan. And all the time he says, you killed my father, prepare to die. Right. And then when Count Dugan offers him riches galore, you know, uh, Inigo simply says, I want my father back, you miserable son of a gun. Something like that. And he kills him, right? He says, there's a debt-to-debt relationship. You killed my father. Well, fine, fine. Let me make it straight with you. Let me, let me pay that. There's a debt-to-debt. Let me equal it out. What do you want? Riches galore? What does he want? I want my father back. Obviously, a debt that cannot be repaid. And he kills the count. Clearly, this debt-to-debt relationship gets magnified when you and I take revenge. When we pay back evil for evil. The debt-to-debtor avenue, which was a one-way street, now puts two lanes of traffic on it because there's a debt and a debtor, but now you say, hey, I want to get them back. So now you do something to get them back, and now you're indebted to them. And so you have this two you know, lanes of traffic going on a one-way street, and the sh- a collision is sure to occur. It always leads to a head-on collision. Some of you are living in that head-on collision all the time in the workplace and in your home, and in your heart, and in your world. Well, James has given us some insight. In chapter 1, he says, trials, tough times are going to happen to all people. And these tough experiences, we're to experience joy before the Lord when we experience trials in our life, because these trials can produce perseverance, and perseverance finishes its work. It says it's maturing us, it's growing us up in the faith as we experience these trials. But then what happens in chapter two is we find that we begin to make evil judgments in our head and in our hearts, and it begins to show itself by what we do. We start to show favoritism to people. We start making judgments where we maybe withhold favor from some, and we show too much favor to others. And in the church, this should not be, there should not be favoritism. And then in chapter 3, James says, listen, your tongue is a tattletale, and it tells on the heart. And these things, these evil judgments that you've been believing in your head and thinking and making the judgment, and you've been owning it in your heart, and then you've been showing it through favoritism and some other things, well, then it bleeds out a little bit, and it comes out your mouth because your tongue is a tattletale, and it tells on the heart. And now in chapter 4, he talks about After the words come out, they are followed by actions, whether good or bad. And in this case, bad, because he begins to talk about the intensity of our fights and our quarrels. He gives us some insight as to where the root of our anger lurks. If you have your Bible, open with me to James chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. James has a question for you. He asks, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James begins to draw out for us a pattern of anger, and I want you to catch it here today as we walk through this pattern. What happens first is that we've got these desires battling within me, and so we basically say, I deserve. 
We become angry. We we're saying, I deserve, I deserve better than I've been treated. I deserve something better. And so we begin to get these desires battling in us. And then we say, well, then I will pay back. James says, quote, so you kill. Some cases maybe actually killing. Other ones, it's just the payback. I deserve, I didn't get what I want, so I'm going to pay back. It would be like a husband and wife being in a conflict where he is unloving to her. She says, I deserve to be loved, but since I'm not being loved, I'm going to withhold respect from you. I'm going to be disrespectful to you. And then you as a man, you might say, hey, well, you've not showing me respect, and so I'm going to be more unloving to you. And you get in the crazy cycle, right? Because you don't get what you think you deserve, and so you pay back. So you kill. He goes on and says this, I deserve, and I'm powerless, excuse me, powerless to get what I deserve. So I will fight and quarrel with those who owe me. So we ongoing, we just start fights and we start quarrels because now we're powerless. We've tried. We thought that expressing the intensity of our emotion might cause a positive reaction, but it didn't. It just escalated. And now we're getting less of what we want and we find ourselves in a powerless condition. So we say, I deserve and I'm powerless to get what I deserve. So I will ask God to give me what I deserve. You ever done this? You're angry with somebody. You're like, Lord, take them. Take them home, Lord. Kill them off, right? <laughs> Lord, life would just be easier if you would just take them out or move them across the country or do something different, right? Lord, just have them leave. Have them go away. We begin to ask God, God, would you change the one who left me to come back? Would you change my circumstances? God, would you change? And we begin to negotiate with God because we tried it on our own and we couldn't do it. So now we appeal to, well, I guess I got to turn to God now. We begin to appeal to him. Well, and if that doesn't happen, I look to the world to give me what I deserve since God or others didn't come through for me. So what happens? We're turning, we're appealing to God. Well, God didn't do it our way or do it to the extent that we thought we deserved. And so we finally go, well, fine, I'm going to go be self-sufficient. I'm going to get it on my own from the world. I'm going to look to other things that harm me. And we carry anger along with us. And in reality, we're like a little kid who's in the store and wants something. You've seen it. They're in the store, they want something, and they're like, I deserve that toy. And then they ask their parent, and the parent may say, no, no, you can't have it. Come on, we got to go. And then the, you know, the little child will say, I want it! And they get really loud. Now you're embarrassed as a parent, and you're like, hey, shh, calm down, calm down. Come on, let's go, let's go. You know, you're hoping that the checker will get the, everything checked out real quick. And then the kid realizes you are making an escape. You're trying to get out of this. So the kid does what any good kid would do, and they throw themselves on the floor, right? Like, now I'm laying down the floor. You're going to, in a sense, you know, I'm, I'm having a silent protest but oftentimes isn't so silent, right? And so they throw themselves on the floor and they're having a temper tantrum and then they realize this didn't work because the parents look at them going, oh, I see what you're doing here. Fussing is not gonna get you what you want. Well, now you didn't get what you deserve, what you want, so what do you do? The kid changes. I love you, mommy. <laughs> love you, dad. Mm, I love you too. Now get up off the floor, we're leaving, you know. And so what happens then, that little kid happens time and again, they kind of grow up and they say, when I was young, I didn't get what I want. So now I'm going to fall in love with the world to give me what I want when I'm old. So I might have a cognitive belief of God, but I'm not giving him my heart because he didn't give me what I deserve. In fact, I'm a little bit angry toward life. I'm angry toward God. 
So what do we do? We look for a substitute. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ, we begin to look for another lover. And James says this in James 4.4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? And that's why scripture said God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God jealously pursues your soul, that spirit that he's put inside of you, God jealously wants that, like a husband would jealously pursue a wife, like a wife would jealously pursue her husband, a righteous and a perfect and a correct jealousy. That phrase there can also be interpreted that God envies intensely for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. That God's love is so great his love is so big that he envies intensely when you and I look to the other things to try to get what we think we deserve. We begin to commit spiritual adultery. But God's love is so good. His love is so vast. His passion is so pure that he envies intensely. The intensity of God's love is unbelievable when it comes to your soul. Verse 6 says, but he gives us more grace. Grace is undeserved favor. Here we are looking to other things to meet our needs, and God comes along and he gives us more grace. How did he do that? He chose to cancel our debt, all of it. When he hung on the cross, when he took all your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross, and he said, I will own this debt. There's a debt-to-debtor relationship going on here, but I will own it. I will receive it all as my own debt. I will pay for it in full, and I will offer you eternal life, relationship with God, the hope of the gospel. He canceled our debt. Mm, but the prideful person that God is opposed to because that pride is what gets them in so much trouble, the prideful person makes a judgment on the inside, and they say, you know what? I'm going to get what I deserve. I'm going to go get it for myself. James 4, 7, James says, submit yourselves then to God. Don't be like that prideful person, right? Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. James is saying, listen, again, in chapter one, you experience trials. That's among the saved and unsaved worldwide. We all do. But then we go on and we begin to make evil judgments in our hearts and it shows up when we show favoritism. Then our tongue is a tattletale and it tells on our heart and we begin to betray what the beliefs are that we have in our heart about what we deserve. And when we don't get what we deserve, our words are followed by actions which are fights and quarrels. And James says, don't stay stuck in your pride. He wants freedom for you. God's love, he wants freedom for you. He wants you to turn back 
to him. So James says, listen, resist the devil. Now, who's the devil? The devil is the father of lies. In fact, Jesus said that the devil's first language is lying. That's his primary language. He's the father of lies. In fact, the devil is the king of I deserve. He's the king who said, and I know I can't be God, but the devil, one of the most highly created beings in scripture, really God's choir director, the, the director of music, and you wonder why music is so powerful. But the director of music says, I know I can't be God, but I deserve to be like God. And it was his pride that got him cast out of heaven. And he deceived a bunch of angels with him, and they were cast out. And that very same devil now roams the earth, looking to devour the joy, to devour the spirit, to devour the soul of God's children. And one of the ways he does that is he just, all he has to do is convince you and me that we deserve. We deserve something better. James says, come near to God. Who's God? God's the revealer of truth. God's the one who begins to peel back in our heart to show us what are the lies that the enemy's been whispering that you and I have been believing that keep us stuck. And so he's going to come along and say, let me reveal truth where you are buying into a lie. And it's keeping you stuck. There was a time when Heather and I were, had moved from Colorado where we met, and then we moved to Southern California, and there was a time when uh, our marriage was on the rocks. Um, I literally thought I might come home from work and she might actually have grabbed the kids and gone back to Colorado. And I tried to do everything I could to, to change her, but at the same time, I had a lot of I deserves inside of me that were pushing her away, and she had a lot of I deserves inside of her that were pushing me away. But fortunately, I have a wife who loves Jesus, and she turned to him, and God began to reveal to her heart, you will not entertain a negative thought about your spouse. Even if you have friends who are fueling it up, you will not. And guess what? God began working on me. Dave, you will not entertain a negative thought about your wife. You will not look for the grass is greener. And it was the thing that got us unstuck. Why? Because we had to resist the lies of the devil, resist his whispers, and let God reveal truth on the inside in that turn. So what do we do? James says, wash your hands. Well, what is washing your hands? Washing your hands is, is you're washing your hands of what you've been doing. Pontius Pilate, when he came to the point of trying to say, is there any righteous charge to condemn Christ to death? And he couldn't find anything, but the Jews demanded it. They say, we deserve this. He didn't want a political uprising. So he literally comes out with a basin of water and he washes his hands. He's saying, I'm washing my hands of my actions in this situation. Now, does that make him righteous? Does that clean him? No. But he was basically saying, I'm done. I'm done with this situation. James is saying, wash your hands of what you've been doing. I'll have nothing more to do with my stinking thinking and my bad behavior. I need to repent. I need to, I've been turning toward the world. I've been turning toward what I deserve. I need to turn back toward God. And I need to treat that other person 
with the love of Christ. I need to wash my hands of my stinking thinking, my bad behavior, these patterns that we're in, because I'm carrying all this anger. And then he says, purify your hearts. What are you purifying your heart of? I'm purifying my heart of what I've been believing. I've been entertaining lies about my spouse, about my life, maybe your marriage, maybe your workplace, maybe your boss, and that maybe some disrespect is going on there. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's with a brother or a sister that you are, have been separated from for years. Maybe it's a parent who's even a parent who's dead. But you've been entertaining and believing and holding on to things that are killing you. Purify your heart of what you've been thinking about what you deserve. What have I been doing with what I've been believing? James would say we've been judging others, right? Because chapter 2, we entertain evil thoughts, we show favoritism to some, we withhold favor from others. Our tongue is a tattletale, it tells on our heart, and after our words come actions like fights and quarrels. Our judgments, our evil desires on the inside have been causing evil judgments, and we've been behaving badly because we've been believing badly. So wash your hands, purify your hearts, come near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4.11 says this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. And when you judge the law, you're not keeping it. You're sitting in judgment on it. There was only one capital L lawgiver and one capital J judge, the one who was able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? judging. What does it do for us? It elevates us above others. It's going to elevate myself. I am better. I deserve better because, frankly, I think I'm better. It lets us choose what laws apply and when and to whom. And you're really inconsistent. It's subjective. You're going to say, you always do this. You never do that. I always do this every time. And then you got to realize that always and never and ever and, you know, I always, oh, these are poor communication words. Because the one time you say, I always do that, they will think of the one time you didn't. <laughs> you say, you never do this. They will think of the one time they did. They're poor communication words. But what happens? We begin believing in our heart and it comes out of our mouth and our fights and quarrels and we're at odds with one another because we are judging. And it convinces us that we have the right to act out based on our opinion. That if I share my opinion, that somehow my opinion got heard, let's just move forward. But many are moving forward in that crazy cycle and you're stuck, and you're angry on the inside. Judging is simply our own pride. The inability to let go of anger leads to prideful bitterness. Well, what's the answer? Is there any fix here? How can we get beyond this when, uh, when the way of our life is this way? The answer is forgiveness, and you go, oh, forgiveness. You mean like where you just finally get emotionally to the point where you're like, okay, I'll let it go. And then you feel ripped off because you think they get away with it, right? Is that what you mean by forgiveness, Dave? No. That's not forgiveness. It's not forgiveness like Scripture tells us. 
because forgiveness, as Scripture tells us, is to cancel the debt. There's a debt-to-debt relationship, and you cancel the debt. Some of you need to create a you-owe-me list, the person you are so angry with. Maybe you live with them, maybe it's a child, maybe it's somebody at work, maybe it's somebody out there in other places that they just irritate you. You need to write down their name and what they owe you. And when you start writing down what they owe you, it might be a long list. And you want to go to the heart and the depth of the emotion of what they owe you and be very specific. And you need to make a list and then you need to look at that list and you need to begin as an act of the will to cancel that list. Okay, I cancel that debt. I cancel that debt. I cancel that debt. I cancel that debt. Ephesians 4.32, great verse, except for the last part, says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. To what degree? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. We like the kind and compassionate part. We're okay with forgiving one another on our terms. But then you get to the very end and you see exactly how strong we are to be about canceling the debt. You mean my debt, all my debt that I, I, all my rebellion against God, all my wickedness and sin that I brought into the relationship with God? Yes, all that debt that he died for on the cross. In fact, it was so serious that Christ, the righteous one, the holy lamb of God, Jesus, the firstborn, had to physically die because your sin is that nasty. Yes, all of it. Cancel the debt. Colossians 3.13, Paul says this, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Oh, to what degree? Forgive as God forgave me of all my sin, of all my mess, of everything. Yes, all of it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You mean that debt that I owe God that there's no way I could ever repay or behave good enough to get on the good side? Yep. Just like those who owe me can't fully repay me. They might be dead. They might be out of touch or out of my life. They may be simply unwilling. They don't care whether you forgive them or not. You can't go back. You and I must cancel the debt. See, forgiveness is a choice. It's an act of the will. And here's how it works. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And our brain and our will is like the engine of the train. And over here is the caboose. The caboose of the train are our feelings. And so right here, right now, we begin to say, here's the you owe me list. And I begin to cancel the debt. And guess what? I don't feel like it. I do not feel like canceling this debt oh, God, you forgave me of everything. I'm going to cancel the debt. And what happens is that begins to get the train in motion. And two minutes later when you're like, oh, I just, oh I'm just feeling so bad about this again, I canceled the debt again. And a day later when you see the person out in the public or online or you, you live with them in your house and they do something again that's irritating to you, you're like, oh, I canceled the debt again. And again, and when that memory comes up or you have a dream at night and you wake up and you're all just thrashed because your dream, you begin to say, I canceled the debt again. It's an act of the will. It gets the engine of the train moving. And over time, as you and I cancel the debt, our feelings catch up. And our feelings catch up because we have canceled the debt so that now we begin to even potentially have compassion on the one 
who's stuck in their sin, their repeated patterns, that they are trapped. We actually have compassion on the one who had previously been killing us. And guess what? Then you're free. That person doesn't have power over you anymore. You've been carrying their power over you for far too long. And James is saying, be free. Cancel the debt. Paul is saying, be free just as in Christ God forgave you. It's an act of the will. Did Jesus want to die physically? Did he want to go through that torture and that pain? No. But it was an act of the will. So that by the time he's on the cross, hanging there with nails through his hands, nails through his feet, he looks out and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What happened? This act of the will moved itself in such a way that his compassion was engaged for those who were nailing him to the cross. And they didn't have power over him. He was having power over sin and death and bearing it and owning their debts as his own and giving his righteousness to you and to me. How serious is this that we give forgiveness? It's so serious that Jesus was God's tithe. God gave his firstborn his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave his first and his best. That's how serious this is. And he says, since you've been forgiven everything, stop playing adultery and going to the world to get what you think you deserve and turn your heart back toward me and understand how intensely envious and jealous in a righteous way I am in my love for you. So you say, I can't, Dave. You don't understand. You don't understand some of the things that have happened to me. You don't understand my past and my life and the things that I went through and the abuse that I endured. And you don't understand what I'm living with every day. And you don't, you don't get it, Dave. You don't, I don't think I could ever get that. I don't think I could ever forgive that person. Because if I forgive them, we fear. If I forgive them, they're going to get away with it. No. They already got away with it. They already got away with it. It happened. They've already gotten away with it. Some of them don't even care. They already got away with it, but the thing is, you're not getting away with it. You're not even getting away from it. You're carrying it with you. And they're exerting power over you in your daily life. And, and God is saying, wash your hands, cancel that debt out every time it comes up and be free. Because forgiveness breaks anger. And let me tell you in this room, there are some of you that you are willing to forgive other people, but you are not willing to forgive you. And you have been carrying against yourself your crimes. You have been carrying against yourself your sins and your iniquities before a holy God who says, I owned it. I paid for it. I wiped it away, but you keep bringing it back to him. I've been reading in the book of Genesis and there's a story of Joseph in the book of Genesis 
And Joseph is a brother among many brothers who, he's the youngest, and he, he comes and he shares, I had a dream with his older brothers. And he says, at some point in your life, this dream is that you're all going to bow down to me. Very disrespectful for the younger brother to tell that to all his older brothers, right? They're not happy with him, so they throw him in a well. It's a dry well, so you just stay down there for a while. And then they think, we're going to kill him. We're sick and tired of his disrespect. He keeps coming up with these grand ideas, like his dream, throws him in the well. So oldest brother, the protector, he thinks, well, I'll let the brothers cool off, then I'll sneak away, get my dad, and we'll come back and rescue him. But while the older brothers snuck away to get the dad and kind of say, hey, you know, here's what happens, Judah, one of the other brothers says, well, we shouldn't kill him because if we kill him, we get nothing for it. We might as well sell him and get some money. I mean, come on, right? So they sell him, they get some money, they sell him into slavery. He goes from slavery in Potiphar's house to slavery in Egypt. He has the ability to interpret dreams like the dream where his brothers would bow down before him. He finally gets called out of being in this prison to interpret a dream of Pharaoh, the most powerful man who saw himself as a divine demigod. And he begins to share the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that there will be years of famine. So we need to have seven years of good so we can make it through the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh puts Joseph right out of jail in charge of his entire kingdom, highest in power except for Pharaoh himself. And during that time, the famine hits. And the dad says to all of Joseph's brothers, hey, go on down to Egypt, get us some grain. So they go on down to Egypt to get some grain so that they can live, they can still survive, and they go to buy it, and Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him because he's walking like an Egyptian. <laughs> Looks very different. He's full grown. He would look exactly like an Egyptian. And he finally calls his brothers in after playing some games with them. He basically calls them in and he reveals to them who he is. I'm your brother, Joseph. And they are so afraid. They're like, he is going to pay back to us for all the wrong that we have done to them. And Joseph weeps and says, do not be afraid. I forgive you. I love you guys. God even allowed this awful, nasty stuff that you participated in way back then. God is doing good things with it. In fact, right now, Joseph is seeing before his eyes that his brothers were bowing down before him to buy grain. His dream was coming true. And whether you see how the bad corresponds to good later in your life or not, it doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to forgive. And Joseph says, I forgive you. And it's a beautiful story. He moves his whole family into the choicest land in Egypt. They get like the cream of the crop land. They bring all their, their family and everything. And a few years go by and then Joseph's dad dies. And the brothers come to Joseph with a fake letter and they say, uh, by the way, this is the last, like, almost like the dying wish of dad. And dad says, we think, dad said, I really want as my dying wish for you to forgive your brothers. And Joseph weeps when he gets this letter. He weeps, he starts crying. Because Joseph years ago had forgiven them, but he now has compassion on them because what he realizes by them and their fear giving him this letter is that they have not forgiven themselves. And he weeps. And I think sometimes for you and for me, we come before God and we, we keep holding up our list of the things he's forgiven and he's like, I've forgiven that. 
Turn. Stop loving the world. Turn toward me. I will provide for you. I will care for you. In fact, Joseph says this in Genesis 50, 21 to his brothers. He says to them, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And there are times that you and I come before God and we're still, we haven't forgiven ourselves. And he's like, I've forgiven you everything. And we won't forgive ourselves. And God says, turn away from your pride. Receive my forgiveness and come back to me. I will provide for you. I will care for you and your children. Forgive yourself. As God through Christ has forgiven you and forgive others as an act of the will as God in Christ has forgiven you. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, believers in the room, this is your moment of decision. For those of you in the room who said, I've made a relationship with Jesus Christ. I know who he is. I've surrendered my life to him. I've given my life to him. This moment of decision for you is this. That today, as an act of the will, whatever God's Holy Spirit has been revealing to you in your heart, that you maybe even have put down on paper, that just today, for the first time, you're saying, God, I, I cancel the debt. I don't feel like it. I don't know how to all do it. But God, right now, I cancel that debt. I wash my hands of my stinking thinking and my bad behavior. Maybe in this room, you've never given your life to Christ. You've never said yes to Jesus. You don't have the forgiveness of all your sin. You just now are realizing that he died on the cross for your sin, that he paid God's righteous judgment, the lawgiver, the judge's judgment against your sin. And today is the day that you need to surrender to him. If that's you today, will you just pray this prayer silently in your seat? God hears you. Just repeat something like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin and that God raised you from the dead, that you are God. And so I surrender my life to you. I lay it down. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that, would you just raise up your hand? Anywhere around the room, awesome, right here in the middle. We've got some people who'd like to give you some stuff. I think Angel right over here in the middle. Just hold your hand up if you prayed that, because I got a friend who wants to give you some information. Everybody's heads are bowed, their eyes are closed. So you just hold your hand up high. And if you got your hand up, you just look up at me. Greatest decision you could ever make. Right here in the front in the middle, Angel, thanks. Anywhere else around the room, just hold your hand up long enough. If I can't see you with lights in my eyes, right here, uh, third row. Um, if I can't see you with lights in my eyes, they'll find you. So they'll sneak their way over to you. Anywhere else around the room, awesome. So good. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for being willing to die for us. That when you didn't want to, you said, not my will, but thine be done. And as an act of the will, you chose to cancel our debt. So God, we need you. We're so thankful for you. God, get us unstuck. Help us to be a church who doesn't harbor bitterness and selfish ambition and envy with one another, but that, God, we are a people who are finding freedom through forgiveness. Instead of anger, we are experiencing compassion, and our heart has become alive and free. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Will you give it up for what God's doing among us? That's good stuff.
Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.